Welcome to the Aroma of Christ podcast, brothers and sisters in Christ. I am Ryan Brown, the pastor of the Fostoria Baptist Church, and the hope behind this podcast is to do nothing in any way to replace regular gathering among God's people. It is for the sake of mutual encouragement of one another through the singing and preaching ministry that we gather. But if you do happen to miss a week and want to keep up in Matthew, or if you want to re-listen to a sermon because it was particularly impactful or particularly confusing, this podcast is available to you. And so we continue on the Aroma of Christ sermons from the pulpit of Fostoria Baptist Church. Scripture reading is Psalm 110. It's a little bit of an enthronement psalm describing the fact that a king is being enthroned. And it's written by David. And David is talking about someone who is greater than him, a master of his. That's the first indication that this is not an enthronement of a human or a merely human king. The other is the intimacy at which he describes the fact that he was sitting at the right hand. Or even the fact that it seems that it's then saying that Yahweh is at his right hand as if Yahweh and this king are interchangeable. There's priesthood from the order of Melchizedek, something that a Judean king wouldn't have had since the priests came from Levi. There's even the great description of judgment that comes into the situation. Who is to judge but God alone? Until the scripture reads, Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power, in the beauties of holiness, From the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He shall fill the places with thy dead bodies. He shall wound uh, the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way, therefore shall he lift up the head. Matthew 22, Matthew 22, verses 41 to 46. The last three weeks, the Pharisees or the Sadducees have come to ask Jesus questions. We're trying to trap him in talk, in speech, in word. He is, as John says, the word of God. He's the very wisdom of God in the flesh, in human nature. So he's not been so easily tricked or trapped. Indeed, now it's his turn. He asks the question. Matthew 22, verses 41 to 46. 
While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, The son of David. He saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word, neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. Father God, we do continue to ask that you would guide us today, that by your Spirit you would lead us to your Son, that we would rejoice in who he is, and that that rejoicing would cause us to go from here with the strength to do what is needed throughout this week, to obey you even when it's difficult, and to do what is needed to be faithful to you. So, Lord, we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So many people this Tuesday will be celebrating Halloween. But for my part, I'll be celebrating Reformation Day. October 31st was the day in 1517 when Martin Luther posted his 95 theses to the doors of Wittenberg Castle Church. His hope was to start an academic debate. But God's plan was to start what we now know as the Protestant Reformation, the breaking off from Rome. And there were particular corruptions in the church that got under Luther's skin. But these corruptions seemed to magnify to him a basic understanding that in the Roman Catholic teaching, Christ was half a savior, not a whole savior. The idea of paying an indulgence in order to particularly save someone from time in purgatory, time of having their sins purged, creates questions of how anyone who believed in Jesus still had sins to be cleansed of. Did he not cleanse them of all their sins? And he started thinking and acting in light of the fact that there is an exclusive identity of Jesus that makes him sufficient. Such that Luke can, can record that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Acts 4.12 And Paul can declare in 1 Timothy 2.5 There is one mediator between God and man 
the man, Christ Jesus. This uniqueness, this exclusivity, this identity of Jesus as the whole Savior, it's at root of what's being talked about in Matthew today. It's at root in what's the answer to Jesus' question reveals about who he is. It's the case that over the course of this text, the wisdom of God fully and finally silences his opponents. That the little bit of conflict of question and answers that happens for the last four Sundays now comes to an end. It also definitively declares to us that Jesus the Messiah is more than just the son of David. We've been looking at tests, answers, and often then the response. And today we do something similar. Starting with the test, verses 41, the first half of 42. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? Now the Pharisees have been gathered together before in this text. Verse 34, during this interchange, the Pharisees gather together when they hear that the Sadducees were put to silence. It's as if they were regrouping, ready to ask another question. To which they did ask, which is the greatest commandment in the law. Now the Pharisees are gathering together. We don't have clear explanation of what they're doing. But while they're gathered, while they're still in the same conversation, Jesus, Jesus decides it's his turn. Jesus turns the tables on them and asks them the question. And his question seems to be simple enough. This Christ, what do you think of him? Whose son is he? The Greek word Christ or Christos is, means anointed one, just like the Hebrew word Messiah. So they're asking him about the Messiah or rather, he's asking them about the Messiah. He's asking them about the Messiah you claim to wait for. Who is his father? Whose son is he ultimately? And it's interesting. Because it's a simple question. But it doesn't continue to beat around the bush. There's some pretty good questions that the Pharisees and Sadducees have asked Jesus, but none of them actually get to the heart of why they don't like him or agree with him. But this one does. Whose son is he? The answer is only the second half of verse 42. They say unto him, 
the son of David. They think about where the Messiah is to come from, and they know prophecies like 2 Samuel 7. And so they immediately say, this anointed one, this Messiah, this Christ, he's going to be the son of David. He will be from David's royal line. Something Matthew himself has constantly told us. The reality of the situation of the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. There have been various people who have recognized him and called him the son of David, recognizing that authority of the Messiah that he carries. So their answer is correct. But even so, they've failed the test. They didn't answer the question correctly in the sense that it's not enough of an answer. The Messiah is David's son, but there's more that needs to be said about whose son he is. Which in verses 43 to 45, Jesus begins to point out. He saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? Taking these questions, not as additional parts of the test, but as questions to expose the fact that they didn't sufficiently answer his first question. And it's really the same question. And in between, sandwiched between, is a quotation from Psalm 110. If David is the father of the Messiah, if the Christ to come is David's son, then how is it that David in the spirit. It's what the King James has in spirit really should be an article and a capitalization there. He's claiming the fact that David wrote it while inspired by the Holy Spirit in Scripture. And therefore, not only is David saying it, but David can't be wrong about what he's saying. How can he, in the spirit, call his son Lord? saying, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. The basic understanding within the biblical imagination is that a father is greater than a son. Levi is in the loins of Abraham when Abraham is blessed by Melchizedek. And if Levi then, as the son of Abraham, he's less than Abraham, Abraham is less than Melchizedek. So Levi is less than Melchizedek. 
That's the basic understanding of the way that these things go. And yet in Psalm 110, David calls this other king, Master, Lord. He recognizes him as greater. And if David so recognizes this Messiah as greater, how then can it be that he is his See, the, the answer that the Messiah is to be the son of David doesn't adequately address the fact that David thinks correctly that the Messiah is greater than he. There needs to be more to the picture, more to understand, more to rejoice in. Jesus must be more than the son of David. Turn back with me to Matthew 16. Let's read in verse 13. When Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ. Sorry. And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. In regards to his humanity, Jesus is the Son of David. But the person that is the son of David does not just have a human nature. He also has this divine nature where he can be properly called the son of the living God. Son of David, human. Son of God, divine. In the sense of his divine nature, through his divine nature better, he precedes David, and it is through him that David comes. Just as through his human nature, it is through David that he came. So he's clearly greater than David in regard to the fact that he is divine. He is the person of God the Son taking upon flesh as the son of David. The answer is insufficient. And now the Pharisees are challenged with the insufficiency of their answer. 
And the final word of these question and answer sessions comes in verse 46. And no man was able to answer him a word. Neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. Decisive silencing. They can't answer the question. They can't clarify whose son he is. And from that day on, they, nor anyone else, would dare to ask him another question. We had for the first two weeks a little bit of a time of a scoreboard. Jesus 1, Pharisees 0. Jesus 2, Pharisees and Sadducees 0. The text didn't really bring us to that last week. But here it's bringing back that idea of how this confrontation is going. In his saying, at the very least, Jesus 4, or maybe higher, Pharisees and Sadducees, nothing. The wisdom of God is not tricked or trapped. The wisdom of God knows the scriptures and the power of God. Jesus Christ, our wisdom, the word of God incarnate. He knows the scriptures. He knows the power of God and he knows the circumstances of life and never errs or makes a mistake. And the Pharisees and Sadducees don't recognize all of that. But they recognize enough that they won't dare to ask him another question. They know they won't entangle him in his talk. But what he shows us when he cuts to the heart of the question when he comes to the heart of why the Pharisees and Sadducees don't agree with him, mainly his claims to be divine, he shows us that he's not just the son of David, though he is that. He is also the son of God. He is of the same substance, of the same nature with God, with the Father as regards his divinity. He is of the same nature and substance with us as regards humanity. He subsists through both human and divine natures. And that is beautiful and wonderful and the basis of our hope. Early theologian Irenaeus says that Jesus, through his transcendent love, became what we are, that he might bring us to be even what he is himself. Now, he's the only begotten Son of God, and he can't share that with us. But being the only begotten Son of God, he became human. 
He became like we are in all respects except for sin. So that through his death, through his resurrection, we would become like him, adopted sons and daughters of God, brought into familial relationship. He became the son of man, the son of Adam, so that we could become the sons and daughters of God. See, when everything was made in the garden, it was good. It was very good. But the first Adam, he failed. He took of the fruit, and sin passed upon all men. All of us sin, all of us are born sinners, all of us are born under the weight of condemnation. And we need someone who can redeem us. Someone who can die in our place. Someone sinless, but a suitable substitute. And so Jesus assumes our nature. He takes it upon himself, adds it to himself, so that now he has two natures. And he, as then the second Adam, succeeds. So that all who believe in him receive life, righteousness, and adopted relationship with God. He becomes human, so that the Son of God is the Son of David that we receive life. Because there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, and one name given whereby we must be saved. Come and be saved by that name today. You haven't. Come in by that straight and narrow gate. Go on that straight path. Come to Jesus who has paid the penalty of sin. Come to Jesus, who has arms open, welcoming you to be in relationship with him, to be joint heirs of him, ultimately looking to our Father, who will welcome us in the end. Can we just pause for a moment and think about the wonder and beauty of Jesus being more than the son of David. God the Son takes upon human flesh, is born as the son of David, and lives like us in all ways, beset with weaknesses obviously beset with weaknesses because he dies gruesomely for us. This exclusive, unique identity of God the Son, that's our hope. That's our joy. That's still today our hope and stay. Let's rejoice in David's son, yet David's Lord. Let's rejoice in this full and better Adam. Let's rejoice in the one who is 
like the Father in regards to his divinity, and like us in regards to his humanity, who has these two natures that undergo no change, no confusion, that are not lost in the process of being united in the one person. Oh, the wonderful incarnation. Oh, the wondrous mystery of God made flesh. Let's behold it. Let's rejoice in it. Let's sing out about its wonder and beauty. Yahweh God, we thank you for sending your Son in human flesh, wholly possessing a human nature. We thank you for the wonderful salvation that this grants us. We know that his death and resurrection is our hope. We thank you that he became like us and died like us so that we could live like him in your courts, even metaphorically in your living room. Thank you, Lord, for what you have done. And may we never lose the wonder and marvel of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to Aroma for Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Fostoria Baptist Church. Do you remember 2 Corinthians 2, 15-16? For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things?